But then, suddenly, five and a half years later, the plane and the people turn up and they land in New York. And um, what they find is that when they get off the plane, everyone else has aged by five and a half years, except for the passengers and the crew on the plane. And because our world, particularly the Western world, moves so quickly, I think it's determined by those in Silicon Valley. That's a whole other sermon about the pace of life. But because the Western world moves so quickly, pretty much after five and a half years, everything has changed in terms of technology. I mean, how many of us had the same phone uh, five and a half years ago that we had today? Oh, some of you. Okay. (laughs) In the nine o'clock, they all put their hands up and they said, what, the one that goes like that? Uh, But things have changed, haven't they, in terms of technology and communication and relationships. And so the 191 passengers and crew emerge from this plane and they find themselves in a whole new world. And they have to learn to live differently. You're going to have to watch it, but it's a whole new world that demands a new way of life. Um, It's not on Right Now Media, uh, sadly, but it is on Netflix. Um, But basically, I felt that Manifest is a great segue into the letter of 1 Peter, because I think what is true for Manifest on Netflix is also true for those Christians that the Apostle Peter is writing to in churches that were scattered around the area known as Asia Minor. These people have come together, they've come to Christ, uh, they've been born again by the Holy Spirit and they are now in Christ. They have been born into a whole new world, the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven. They are now citizens, not of this earth, but they are citizens of heaven. And that in itself demands a new way of living. They are in the world, like we are in the world, but they are not of the world. Something that Jesus prays about in John 17. In a letter to a a Greek bloke called uh, Diognetus, and this is quite a long quote, but we just go through it. In the first century, the writer says this, Christians are indistinguishable from other men, either by nationality, language, or customs. They do not inhabit separate cities of their own, or speak a strange dialect, or follow some outlandish way of life. Unlike some people, they champion no purely human doctrine. With regard to dress, food, and manner of life in general, they follow the custom of whatever city they happen to be living in, whether it is Greek or foreign. So they are in the world. And then... um, Uh, The letter goes on with this. It says, and yet there is something extraordinary about their lives. Any country can be their homeland, but for them, their homeland, whatever it may be, is a foreign country. They live in the flesh, but they're not governed by the desires of the flesh. They pass their days upon earth, but they are citizens of heaven, obedient to the laws, yet they live on a level that transcends the law. And so we find that they're in the world, but they're not of the world. They're living at a different address. Um, Christians love all men, but all men persecute them. Condemned because they are not understood, they are put to death, but raised to life again. They live in poverty, but they enrich many. They are totally destitute, but possess an abundance of everything. They suffer dishonor, but that is their glory. They are defamed, but vindicated. A blessing is their answer to abuse, deference, their response to insult. God has appointed them to this great calling and it will be wrong for them to decline it. God has called them to be in the world but not 
of the world. And clearly, these first century Christians were known by their difference. They'd started, been born again into a whole new world on earth as citizens of heaven. And they were known for the way of life that they were living that was different from everyone else. Um, Catholic theologian Timothy Radcliffe. Um, oh, can you just give me the next slide, Julian? Is that okay? Um, Timothy Radcliffe said, said this. He said, there should be something about Christians that puzzles people and makes them wonder what is at the heart of their lives without our lives being in some way odd. If we just conform, then our words about faith will be vacuous. Now, it's true to say that there are some Christians who are odd, but they were probably odd before they became Christians. But I think that Timothy Radcliffe here is talking about a different kind of oddness, an oddness that indicates that we are, in fact, exiles and aliens and foreigners, which is something that one Peter speaks about when he describes those who follow Jesus. At the end of the day, what we find is that we are living, we're called to live differently and dance to a different tune. And so Peter, in this letter, he's identified God's people as being exiles. He's identified them as being living stones. And then what happens, if you look in the text, he then goes through and he gives them some instructions about the new way of life that they should live now that they are citizens of heaven. The old has gone and the new has come. Now, um, but you know, the verses that we look at today, if you kind of back up a bit, Peter talks about how to live for God in a pagan society, how to respond to the government, how slaves and masters and husbands and wives should relate to one another. And then we come to our reading for today, 1 Peter 3, beginning at verse 8. And Peter writes, finally, everyone's favorite word in a sermon. But the interesting thing about this is Peter writes finally, and he writes in two more chapters anyway, so he obviously doesn't get there very quickly. But in that verse 8, he says finally, and he highlights five characteristics of this new way of life that these people, God's people, should be living. They should be living like that then. We should be seek to be living like that now as exiles in the new thing that God is doing in the world. And just after um, Peter's finally, and the five characteristics of this new way of life that he speaks about in verse 8, and we're going to come back to those five characteristics, because I know you love five-point sermons, uh, Peter then quotes from probably what is his favorite psalm. And so from verse 10, he quotes from his favorite psalm, Psalm 34, which he also quotes from in 1 Peter chapter 2, when he talks about taste and see that the Lord is good. And in this psalm that Peter quotes, he, the psalmist distinguishes between good people and evil people. And the psalmist highlights some of the characteristics of the good people and makes it clear that the eyes of the Lord are on the good and that God is attentive to their cry. I think one of the reasons why Peter puts his psalm in to those people in those scattered communities across Asia Minor is because they were being persecuted for their faith. No doubt they were crying out to God. And Peter is encouraging them that actually God hears their cry. And then in the psalm that Peter quotes from, there's one particular sentence. If you look there uh, in verse 11, it says this. Do you want to put the next slide up for me, Julian? It says this, they must turn from evil and do good. They must seek peace and pursue it. 
And, and that phrase, seek peace and pursue it, carries with it the sense of frantically looking for something that you can't lay your hands on in that moment in time. Um, a few weeks ago, I lost one of my AirPods. And uh, if you've not been um, taken in by Apple, uh, this is an AirPod. And it connects to my phone, and I listen to loads of books and podcasts uh, while I'm running or gardening or hoovering, I've written here. I'm not quite sure that's true. And, and I love, I love my AirPods. So um, on, I, I lost this AirPod, but on my phone, I have this app called Find My. And if you're an Apple junkie, you'll know about that app. And basically what it will then do, it will then tell you where your lost gadget is. And so this app helpfully told me that the lost AirPod that I was looking for was somewhere in or around my house. <laughs> Useless, really, when you think about it. But that was a start. Now, AirPods aren't cheap, but I think they're worth every penny. Keep telling Anna that. So I did what we call in our house a John look. And I looked frantically everywhere for my lost AirPod. Couldn't find it anywhere. After I'd finished my John look, we then took looking to a whole other level. And we then start the Anna look. <laughs> I, sometimes we call it the man look, and the, I, but I don't want to get into that gender stereotype <laughs> stuff. But basically, that's where Anna looks for something that is lost. I had to go out to a meeting, came back home in the hope that the Anna look had been successful, only to find that not even an Anna look had found my AirPod. I was devastated, but I wasn't going to give up. Now, when the AirPod went missing, you know when you lose something, you kind of go back and think, oh, where was I, what did I do, all this kind of stuff. Uh, but when the AirPod actually went missing, someone in our house, who shall go unnamed, had been doing some tidying up. And put in rubbish in the bin and the recycling bags, hadn't they? So I thought, <coughs> I thought I will need to go and look through the recycling and the rubbish bag outside. Now the recycling was fine. I don't know about you, we wash up all our recycling, then we stick it in. Does anyone put their recycling stuff in dirty? Good. Otherwise, it would be like the walk of shame if you did. But, so tipping out the recycling was fine, but then it came to the bin, and, and that week was a particularly nasty bag of rubbish. So I tipped out the nasty rubbish, I had my gloves on, and I rifled through, and what was in there? My AirPod. I was ecstatic. I had a, a Luke 15 moment. My AirPod that was dead is alive again. It was lost and is found. Funny enough, we had, some of you know the Shaw family, they were staying with us. In fact, a lot of good they were looking for it. But I was so excited, we opened Prosecco and we celebrated. <laughs> when, when the, any excuse, when the psalmist and Peter talk about seeking and pursuing peace, um, what they're saying here is, is having that sense of determination um, about seeking after something, that same kind of determination that I had to look for my airport. And when the psalmist and Peter talk about seeking and pursuing peace, when it comes to peace, they're not just talking about an absence of conflict or this kind of settled feeling in our hearts, you know, I feel at peace. But when they are talking about peace, they are talking about 
a Hebrew concept called shalom. And it's all about well-being. It's all about completeness and contentment and wholeness. Essentially, I think shalom is the abundant life that Jesus says he wants to give his followers in John 10. I've come to give you life. I've come to give you shalom, the best life that you can have and life in all its fullness. And I think that Peter, in this text, actually gives to these churches a new way of living that they need to engage in, which will in turn lead to shalom, to peace in the new world that they inhabit. Peter implies that they should seek and pursue this new way of living with everything that they have got, with great passion and dedication. And some aspects of the way of life that they should rigorously pursue are in 1 Peter chapter 3, uh, verse 8. And I think that as they seek after those ways of living, those characteristics, that in turn leads to the abundant life that Jesus offers. I think Peter is saying that if we live out these five characteristics, then we will then live a life of peace and shalom. So we're going to look at these five characteristics, but to be honest, I'm not going to do justice to them today. This verse is a whole sermon series in itself. But let me give you some brief thoughts on how we might live so that we might know shalom and live well in this new world as citizens of heaven. And as I speak about these five different characteristics in verse 8, um, which are essentially are about how we relate to one another, um, that, that's what life is all about. It's not about money and status and all that kind of stuff. It's about how we relate to one another. I think I'd say to you, be open to the Holy Spirit. Bring into mind a person or, person or group that you might need to live differently with because your present way of living with them is not leading you to a place of peace or shalom. The first one, next slide, Julian, is be like-minded. Peter says that we should pursue being like-minded in our church communities, which is all about unity. Now, I mean, Ruth has already prayed that, get people together, there's conflict, and it's very likely that in these new church communities in Asia Minor that Peter writes to that there is already disunity in those communities. Disunity is nothing new. But unity is at the heart of our faith. Central to what we believe is one God in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Unity is clear in the Trinity. The reason why we struggle in our relationship with God is because of disunity. Look back to Genesis 1 and 2. We find portrayed there that Adam and Eve sin against their creator and it leads to disunity. Jesus, and we've already spoken about this, uh, in John 17, prays his great prayer of passion and anguish as he prays for complete unity amongst his followers. The apostle Paul, like Peter, challenges us to live in a way that is consistent with the gospel, the good news of Jesus. For me, if I was to sum up the gospel, it's all about a word reconciliation. Reconciliation 
with God because of the death of Jesus, reconciliation with one another as a sign of this new humanity that we're called to be a part of. And the church is called to be both a reconciled and a reconciling community. And because of that, we need to work hard at unity. Our disunity is a travesty. Sadly, our disunity within a church and across churches, though, will be seen by others and they will basically see us as being hypocritical because united we stand, divided we fall. There's a lot more you could say about unity, but the wonderful Nicky Gumbel wrote some um, very clear ideas about how we might keep unity in relationships. He says this, we should refuse to be offended. People get offended very easily, particularly when I talk to them. I don't know why, maybe it's me. We should refuse to hold a grudge. We should refuse to take revenge. Be like-minded. Second one, uh, characteristic that we should pursue is be sympathetic. Sympathy comes from two Greek words, sin, which basically means with, being with, and pathos, which means emotion or suffering. And so sympathy is about being with those who suffer. It's also about being with those who are in a place of joy as well. Paul writes about that in Romans 12. He says that we should weep with those who weep and rejoice with those who rejoice. And being with one another or being with another in their joy or in their pain takes the focus off of ourselves and onto the other. It's fairly clear, I think, from what Peter is saying is that sympathy and selfishness can't coexist. And as citizens of heaven, we are to pursue being sympathetic wherever God has placed us, to forget ourselves and to identify with others, both in their joy, but also in their sorrows. Be with others where they are at. Third one is love one another. And I think it's fair to say that loving other people who love us is fairly straightforward. It's what we call a reciprocal arrangement in many ways. Uh, Peter, though, knew all too well that Jesus took loving one another to a whole other level. Uh, Peter would have been sat on the mountain where Jesus preached one of his long sermons, longer than this one, uh, the Sermon on the Mount. And next slide, Jesus uh, said this. He says, you have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. Jesus takes loving one another to a whole other level. In the fourth century BC, there was a Greek philosopher called Xenophon, where we get the term xenophobic from. And he said that a person should give help to their friends and trouble to their enemies. Even the conventional Jewish wisdom at the time of Jesus was love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Yet Jesus takes his teaching about enemies on its head. And in the Gospels, he says that when it comes to your enemies, that you should love them and that actually there are four things that you should do to those who are your enemies, to those who have caused you hurt and pain. The first, he says, is obviously to love them. With agape love, it's not just uh, about uh, a positive feeling inside of us towards the other, but agape love is deep and costly love. 
and will actually lead for us to take action on behalf of the other. And Jesus gives an idea of what that action might be when it comes to our enemies. He says this, when it comes to our enemies, do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. And pray for those who mistreat you. Jesus takes loving others to a whole other place. And when Peter says love one another, the challenge is, is for us to love our enemies and to do good to them, to bless them and to pray for them. And we should pursue that if we are to live for Christ in this new world that we find ourselves a part of. I would say that when I've hated my enemies, that actually life is harder. There's a lovely Greek word that we use as forgiveness. It's aphiemi, and it means to let go. Is there someone that you need to let go of this morning so that you might love your enemies and do good to them, bless them, and pray for them? Okay, number four is uh, be compassionate. Anyone know the Greek word for compassion? Anyone upstairs in the balcony? No, down here? Shall I impress you? Okay, I'm asking as to whether anyone knows it, because it then means when I pronounce it, no one's got a clue whether I've got it right or wrong. So um, it's splagnizomai, splagnizomai. Don't ask me to spell it, but it literally means to be moved in one's bowels, which were thought to be the seat of love and pity. To be compassionate means that we aren't indifferent to the needs of others, but we're actually moved emotionally with a gut-wrenching response that moves us to action where there is need. That's what compassion is. It's about something that starts in here that causes us to take action on behalf of those who find themselves in need. Um, The comedian Catherine Tate, in one of her characters, next slide, Julian, uh, coined this phrase, am I bothered? But being compassionate means that we are bothered. That we are bothered about the brokenness of our world and the brokenness of other people's lives. Fifthly and finally, be humble. We've, we've thought a lot about humility over the past few months and we said that humility isn't thinking less of ourselves but thinking of ourselves less. Strangely enough, it was a characteristic that was looked down upon in Greco-Roman society in the first century. Next slide. Uh, one commentator said, said this. He says, In the highly competitive and stratified world of Greco-Roman antiquity, only those of degraded social status were humble and humility was regarded as a sign of weakness and shame. Thus, the high value placed on humility by Israelites and Christians is remarkable. And so actually for the church at that time to pursue humility was countercultural. And in some ways, in our highly competitive, me first, my rights, self-promoting and individualistic society that we live in today, some might argue that living a life of humility now is also countercultural. But that's what we're called to live. Apparently, there are two kinds of people that walk into a room. One is thinking, here I am. The other is thinking, there you are. 
We are called to the latter. People of humility, there you are, people. Um, the writer, Dane Ortland, who's written a lot about gentleness and humility, um, in reference to a text from Matthew 11, uh, where Jesus says, Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, take my yoke upon me and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart. He wrote this. Next, next slide, please. He says, When Jesus tells us what animates him most deeply, what is most true for him, when he exposes the innermost recesses of his being, what we find there is gentleness and humility. Gentleness and humility are at the heart of God. And actually, that characteristic of gentleness and humility is what we are called to live by. Thinking of ourselves less, not saying here I am, but saying there you are. Okay, next slide. How then should we live? Peter gives the churches then and us now a whole new way of living. And that as we live in this way, I think what we discover is that we know the peace of God. We know shalom in this new world that we inhabit. But all that said, it's a lot easier to say it than to do it, isn't it? Let's be honest. Living like this is not straightforward. We need all the help that we can get, which is why we pray, come Holy Spirit. Last slide, just in closing. This is a picture of a couple called Raphael and Imani. And myself, Susie and Matty, baptised them last Thursday in the sea uh, Havilet by Octopus. Raphael, they're very happy for me to share this, and Imani um, came here. They said, we want to follow Jesus, and they did an alpha course, and then we baptised them. And as part of the liturgy, the words that we use as that service, they say this, I seek new life from the Holy Spirit. And we responded on that beach in Havilet, walk with us in the life of the Spirit. And I think that when we do walk together in the life of the Spirit, then we are strengthened to live as citizens of heaven on the path that leads to peace. And so this morning, I say to you what we said to Raphael and Imani on Havlet on Thursday. Walk with us in the life of the Spirit. Live differently. Be like-minded, be sympathetic, love one another, be compassionate, be humble. And in doing so, I firmly believe that the promise of God is that we might know the peace, the shalom of God in our lives. Would you like to stand? <clears throat> Going to sing a final song. Uh, but also there's a, an opportunity to receive prayer. Some people over to my left, happy to pray for you. And it may well be that you look at that way of living and you think, I'm struggling with that. Well, we'd love to pray with you. I struggle with it. We all struggle with it. I'd love, we'd love to pray with you this morning. We take some oil, which is a sign of the Holy Spirit. We just make the sign of the cross on your head and say, come Holy Spirit, help this person to live this new way of life as a citizen of heaven. It may well be, though, that within that as well, there, there is a relationship that is difficult, 
You don't have to name the other person, but we can pray for you, pray for you, that you might know God's help and strength in that difficult relationship. So Father, we thank you for this written word, and we pray that you would help us as your people to live in this new way of life. And we say, come Holy Spirit, help us to walk in this way of life, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.